My name is John Duby. I am the associate pastor here at Rosedale Bible Church, and it is my privilege to uh, minister to you through the Word this morning. But before I do so, I wanted to offer a couple comments here. I know there was a slide up there, Prayer for the Lost. I'm not sure if I walked out when we missed, if we did that or we didn't do that. Um, but uh, I do intend to pray this morning, and so uh, that slide is appropriate. Uh, <clears throat> on a serious note, as you're well aware of, uh, this, this Tuesday marked uh, another mass shooting uh, in our country, uh, and I, I trust you know the details of this atrocity. I'm not going to recount those details here this morning for you. Uh, this is the second mass shooting in this month in our country, and so like you, uh, we're heartbroken. Our families are heartbroken uh, over, over this news and over these events. These are the kind of events that sometimes, you know, th they leave us questioning the things of God. Um, it, it's easy to say that God is sovereign in control. We say those things often. It's, it's easy to say those things, uh, yet it seems inconsistent sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, when we, when we see the, the events, these kind of events unfold around us. And so we ask questions like, you know, how, how could a good God, how could the God that we proclaim and we preach about, the saving God, how could He allow such tragedy and such violence uh, around us? The problem with, uh, well, excuse me, <laughs> there might be a temptation to answer this question by claiming that God is somehow outside of these events. I think that is the temptation, that He is in fact not sovereign and therefore has not allowed such a tragedy. That is the temptation. The problem with such a response is that, as we know, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. I'm reminded of R.C. Sproul's, uh, some, of the famous, some of his came, uh, famous comments, and, and he said that there's no maverick molecules in the universe outside of God's control. If we fall into the error that God is outside of these tragic events, we're not only denying the clear teaching of Scripture, but we really lose the only hope that we might have. The biblical answer to the kind of pain and suffering that a mass shooting brings is not to remove God from the problem, but in some ways to place Him at the center or in the center of that problem. And although this will not diminish the pain and the heartache that we experience, comfort can be found as we discover that God can turn even the most heart-wrenching events for good. That's really the only hope we have. The words of Joseph are ever poignant. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I think that's a banner that we, we want to wave over all of these kind of events. People are upset and, uh, you know, I've heard, you know, people want more than our thoughts and our prayers. Surely there are things we can do, there are actions that we can take. However, it's not insignificant, it's not trite to call on the God of the universe, which I, th I think there's a theme up to this point in our service with the songs that we've been singing and the, the language that we've been using it's that we can call on the name of Jesus, and it's good and right 
to appeal to our creator God, the God of the universe, for help. So we would do that. We should cry for help. Writing on this topic this week, uh, an article I read, uh, Josh Weedman, he writes, we need to pray for the victims and their families, for the first responders, the medical personnel, law enforcement, administrators, the leaders in the community. We need to pray for God to change people's hearts, causing them to love good and to hate evil. And we need to pray for God honoring societal changes which might reduce, if not eliminate, mass shootings. We need to pray that God would bring justice to those who would wreak such chaos. And so, I'd like us to just pray now. If you would, bow your heads. Sovereign Lord, great God, our, our hearts are broken. Our hearts are broken for the people of Uvalde, Texas, and also Buffalo, New York. It's impossible for us to truly enter into the, the kind of suffering that these families are experiencing. Maybe some of us can relate in some ways, but I, I think most of us cannot. It seems even impossible to collect the right words, to offer the right kind of prayers. I don't know how to pray for such a tragedy. You have commanded us to pray in a certain way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In these kind of moments, we long for your kingdom to come. We long for the injustice and the brutality of such things to be put to an end. And so we cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. Thinking about Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 through 27, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Lord, you plan to bring us to a place that has nothing unclean, that has nothing detestable, that has nothing false. And so, come, Lord Jesus, bring us to that place. And yet up to that moment, Lord, we need great comfort we need your comfort to wash over those communities and our nation. We need you to bring healing. Lord, we need you to bring understanding. We need you to bring reconciliation to these families and to our leaders. We pray, Lord, that you would bring our nation's leaders, you, that you would bring to our nation leaders who, who would love good and hate evil, men and women who would take action to shift the minds and our culture towards that which is pleasing to you, God. This is indeed a lofty prayer. It is a lofty prayer. It's a lot to ask for. We believe, Lord, yet help our unbelief. Help us, help us hold on to the hope of James 5.16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
And we know, Lord, that it's not our righteousness that we appeal to. It is a foreign righteousness. It is the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it is in His holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, I want to transition to our message here, and we are going to be in the book of Titus this morning, which is a, a change for us because, as you know, we've been studying the book of Ephesians. And so if you would, turn to the book of Titus. If you have a blue Bible, it's page 998 in your blue Bible. Uh, it's towards the back of the New Testament. I'm guessing that you know guessing that you know that most of the churches in the United States have either plateaued or are in decline. You probably know that. Uh, most reports suggest that two-thirds of all churches are experiencing these challenges. While these churches certainly bear some responsibility for this, the decline in the American church is probably more the result of a larger problem. For decades, we've been talking about modernity and post-modernity. You've probably heard those words floating around out there. Uh, these words, they characterize the broad and the general way that our society thinks. As it relates to religion, the spirit of the age, the spirit of the age has been described as post-Christian. Maybe you've heard that as well. In this post-Christian world, we can no longer assume that everybody believes in what we might call a sacred order. We can't assume that people believe in that sacred order. We can no longer assume that our, that our neighbors, those next to us, our co-workers and our neighbors, that they believe in a transcendent, supernatural dimension of reality. We can no longer assume that they believe in moral absolutes, that they believe in, in an afterlife. The spirit of our late modern culture is to reject any sacred order. Even further, tragically, Tim Keller says this. He says, today's culture believes the thing we need salvation from is the idea that we need salvation. For much of American history, even evangelism simply involved setting in order certain things in the minds of people. You might say connecting the dots. That's how we've approached evangelism for 50, for 70 years. Evangelism was like putting, putting the furniture in a room in order. The furniture was there in the room, and all we needed to do is come across people and, and put that furniture in order. All that was required was to give people the right understanding of God, of the afterlife, of moral truth, of sin, and of salvation. Well, sadly... Today, in this post-Christian world, there's no furniture to arrange. There's nothing to set into order. It's my conviction that the world in which we live, this post-Christian world, you might call it, is, is actually very similar to the church, the early church, uh, and in the uh, New Testament. It's, it's very, very similar to our current world. That, that is, the church of the New Testament is very similar to our current, current world. This means that the modern church can benefit greatly by taking a hard look at what Scripture says. By putting ourselves in the New Testament, that's going to prepare us for living in this kind of culture. 
And so I believe this short letter to Titus is such, such an example, and it will help us here to address this. Paul wrote this letter to Titus while he was ministering to the people on the island of Crete. Now, maybe you don't know, Crete is a, is a Grecian island. It's part of modern-day Greece, and it's in the Mediterranean Sea. It's a fairly large island there. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't actually record the details of how the church got to Crete. It doesn't even really record much details about Paul or Titus being on this island. Um, we don't exactly even know how the gospel got to the island of Crete. And so there's some mystery there. There is a clue, however, in the New Testament, and that comes uh, from the early chapters of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2 specifically. We, we discover that there are Jews from Crete that are in Jerusalem in Acts 2 the birth of the church. And so, we might speculate that they took the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, back to the island of Crete, and that's where maybe the first news of Jesus came to the island of Crete. But that would have been 20 years prior to Paul writing this letter to Titus. So, without any… Without, the only details we have are that, and so we don't actually know if an apostle or any disciples or anyone was on the island of Crete up to this point that Paul writes this letter. So, however the gospel arrived in Crete, it appears there was disorder there, and we know that because in Titus chapter 1 verse 5, Paul gives the purpose of this letter, and he says this, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. So, however the gospel got there, there was disorder on the island and disorder in the church, and so Paul's writing to Titus, ultimately, that he might put the church in order. And so, this is the chief task of this letter. This is what the letter really is about, putting the church into order. Now, putting things into order would be particularly a challenge for Titus because like our late, uh, late, late modern culture, the Cretan culture was antagonistic towards Christianity. There's some similarities here. Starting with a general lack of self-control, which is true of the Cretans, uh, Paul repeatedly addresses liars and divisive people who are upsetting families and they're exploiting people. This is all true of the Cretan culture. And, and Paul even says one of their own prophets, as you probably know, Titus 1.12, quoting one of their prophets, Paul says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And he says, in fact, this testimony is true. This is true of the Cretan people. So, what might this short letter teach us about reaching our late modern culture for Christ? What does it look like to be a godly people in an ungodly world? Now, we could spend weeks talking about that. There are a lot of things that I think this letter offers uh, in answer to that question. But, but there's one thing that I want to especially take note of this morning, and there's one thing that, that Paul actually says that we have to insist on. We have to insist on. And so that's what I want to focus on this morning. The thing that we need to insist on, as we're going to see, is a proper view of salvation. That's what we have to insist on a proper understanding of the gospel and how God saves people. That has to be the central focus of anything we do to affect change in this world. And so this morning, we will discover how the trustworthy details of our salvation empower us to make an impact in an ungodly world. I know that's a mouthful. 
So this morning, we will discover how the trustworthy details of our salvation empower us to make an impact in an ungodly world. And so if you would, please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read our text this morning as we get into it. And again, it's Titus chapter 1, and I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. The central message of these verses is found in three words in verse 5. In fact, the first three words of verse 5, He saved us. That's really the central idea of this text this morning. Everything else is, is supporting or describing this action. Salvation is the big overarching idea of this text. And notice that, notice who is the subject of the verb. God is the subject of the verb, and we are the object. It was God who saved us. It was God who rescued us from the life of sin and death. The rescue, our salvation, is entirely of the Lord. And so we often say, salvation is of the Lord. It is very significant that, that Scripture, when it talks about salvation, it uses the imagery of a new birth. That is very significant. We can learn a lot about salvation from that illustration. As we know, a child makes no contribution to its conception or its birth. It does nothing. A child is completely dependent on his parents to be brought into being. And so you and I are dependent on God to be brought into being, to be saved. You recall the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's a new birth. The Apostle John was written, he has written in John 1.13, 1 John 1.13, no, this is John 1.13, he has written that we are born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are born of God. What he is saying is that salvation does not come from family lineage. It's not our heritage that saves us. Salvation does not come from the will of man. No child wills itself to be born. And salvation does not come from any kind of man-made religion. Salvation is entirely of God. James 1.18, of His own will He brought us forth. Ephesians 2.5, we studied this when we went through chapter 2 of Ephesians with Danny. He says that God made us alive. God is the one that made us alive. 1 Peter 1.3 says, He caused us to be born again. I don't believe I'm telling you anything new here. I'm just reinforcing this idea that God is the one who saves us. 
It is He who saved us. All of this demonstrates both God's sovereignty and salvation and man's helplessness. Man can't save himself. He is incapable. If you look just one verse above the verse I read, Titus 3.3, you'll see that all of this saving language is set in the context of the helplessness of man. Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. These are not the descriptions of someone who's able to rescue themselves. These are the descriptions of, of someone who needs a rescuer, who needs to be rescued. Jesus said in Luke 19.10 that He came into the world to, to do what? To seek and to save that which was lost. How did He do this? What are the details of God's saving work? Like I said, everything in this passage either supports or describes that activity, that action of God. And so then, let us look at the trustworthy details of our salvation. I have four questions for you, and this would be our outline. This is the first question. When did God save us? When did God save us? Well, we have the answer to that question in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, excuse me, yeah, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He did what? He saved us. When He appeared. Simply put, when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, that's when He saved us. Now, there's two ideas here, yet Paul has really, uh, the idea is really one, even though he uses two thoughts. Uh, they should be held as one because the verb there is singular. And so, really, it's, it's one idea that Paul is after. And what would that one idea be? It would be the incarnation. It would be the, the appearing of Jesus. It is when Christ came that He saved us. That is described here as the, the goodness or the kindness of God. 2 Timothy 1, 9, and 10 has a similar idea. Paul writes, 2 Timothy 1, 9, and 10, he says, God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now, this coming grace, now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel." Similar idea as all of the, these verses here. Now, it's important, again, to remember that when God's love in Christ burst forth on, on the horizon, we were yet sinners, which is what verse 3 said. You know, Romans 5a, but God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As verse 3 reminds us, we were disobedient. God's goodness and loving kindness appeared while we were yet sinners. And so it's against the dark hues of our pre-Christian past that the bright light of God's grace shines brightly. And this moment, this epiphany, you might say, that appearing, that idea of an appearing is the Greek word epiphany, that epiphany of God is entirely of the Lord. It's God's idea. 
It was His manifestation. He's the one who acted, not us. The epic events of Christ's incarnation happened as only God would have them unfold, and only within His perfect timeline. Historians, you know, those who are interested in history, you know, as you think about history and you think about, you know, all the various empires of the world and you think about the Roman Empire and the way that Judaism was set in the Roman context and you think about the way that Jesus came when He did and how all of that came together in this perfect period of time that would happen perfect in God's wisdom. It's fascinating. I'll spare you those details. But if you're into history, you, you, you understand that and you know that, and it's captivating to think about that. Therefore, the center of God's saving activity is the person and work of Jesus. This is why Paul says in Colossians 1.28, it is Him we proclaim. It is Christ that we proclaim. The center of God's goodness, His kindness towards man, is the person and work of Jesus. It's the highest point. It's the highest event. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, he says, And when I came to you, brothers, this is Paul writing, he says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. I didn't bring fancy language or fancy words. For I decided to know nothing among you except what? Except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's the only thing. Paul's saying that he would trade in the libraries of the world. He would trade in the the, the largest technical databases in the world, a sea of servers and all that it could contain for these two simple ideas, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Everything else is rubbish. It, It means nothing. It's the highest answer. And so, we understand when God saved us, Jesus, when Jesus came and appeared, appeared, the incarnation, Bethlehem. But we move from when to why in the first half of verse 5. And so, why would God save us? Verse 5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to what? His own mercy. His own mercy. The answer to why God would save us is really bound up in that word mercy, because God is a merciful God. And so, as we've already seen, we didn't do anything. We can't claim God's kindness and love. We were disobedient. We were lost. It's an act of God's mercy. It's an act of His sovereign grace. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, but God, being rich in mercy… Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Psalm 136 verse 1, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Scripture describes God's mercy as great, as abounding, as abundant, as tender. His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting, Psalm 103. And as a result, Psalm 59, Joel will like this, we are to sing aloud of His mercy. We are to sing aloud of His mercy. God's mercy speaks to His pity, to His compassion. 
Arthur Pink describes God's mercy as the ready inclination of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. God is at the ready to relieve us of our misery. That's mercy. Pink continues, God's mercies, he says, quote, transcend our loftiest thoughts. For as high as heaven is above the earth, so great is the mercy toward them that fear him. None can measure it. The elect are designated vessels of mercy. It is mercy that quickened us when we were dead in sins. It is mercy that saves us. It is his abundant mercy which begat us unto an eternal inheritance. Time would fail us to tell of his preserving, sustaining, pardoning, supplying mercy. Unto his own, God is the Father of mercies. When all thy mercies, O oh my God, my soul, my, my singing soul surveys, transported with the view, I'm lost in wonder, love, and praise. End quote. So when did God save us? He saved us at the appearance of Christ. Why would God save us? Well, because he is a merciful God. He's a merciful God. Now, a third question, and this is where things get a little bit more complex. How did God save us? How did God save us? And see, the answer to this third question is, is, is approached from two perspectives in uh, this passage, two perspectives. And so again, verse 5, it says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the how. That answers the how question. And so let's look at regeneration first. Regeneration. Sometimes this is translated rebirth. Maybe some of your translations have that, rebirth. But regeneration is simply a new beginning. It's a new genesis, regeneration. It's a new genesis. The added idea of washing re reinforces that idea of spiritual cleansing. It's a washing of regeneration. It's a new beginning. Therefore, regeneration is the instantaneous entrance into a new existence at the moment in time a person trusts in Christ. Did you get that? The instantaneous entrance into a new existence at the moment in time a person trusts or places their faith in Christ. does not represent a progressive condition or a state. Rather, it represents an event. It is an event. In the same way that physical birth is a once-in-a-lifetime moment in time, you have a birthday, you actually have a birth hour, a birth second, it's an event. That's what it represents. In the same way, so regeneration represents that kind of event, a moment in time in which you were saved. And so Jesus' words in John 3, if we were to go look at John 3 and, and read Jesus' language of, of, of the new birth, it would be synonymous with this idea of regeneration. Now, to what extent does this washing of regeneration pervade the sinner? What, to what extent does it change us? Well, as the word suggests, it's a new beginning. It's a new beginning. And so regeneration equates to a new creation, a recreation of the whole person. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any was, anyone is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
In regeneration, God opens our blind eyes. He replaces the mind of the flesh with the mind of the Spirit, Romans 8. In regeneration, God removes our heart of stone and implants a heart of flesh. Thus, we are capable of perceiving and living spiritual truth. In regeneration, God renews our affections after the likeness of Christ so that we hate sin and we love righteousness and we rejoice in the Christ whom we once regarded as foolish. In regeneration, God frees us from the bondage of sin to the liberty of righteousness. We are no longer in possession of the shackles of sin, but we have been set free to do that which is pleasing to the Lord. In regeneration, God enables us Philippians 2.13, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In regeneration, we are, as Ephesians 4.24 says, a new self, a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. George Whitfield said, our souls, though still the same as to essence, yet are so purged, purified, and cleansed from their natural dross filth, and leprosy by the blessed influence of the Holy Spirit that we may properly be said to be made anew. In Spurgeon, the new birth is a change of the entire nature from top to bottom in all senses and respects. It's a new beginning. It's regeneration. We're a new creation. We're new people. This is what God does, and this is how God saves us There's a second part here. He saves us through the washing of regeneration, and it says through the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration and renewal. These are the two perspectives uh, of salvation that Paul lays forward here. And this is analogous to Ezekiel 36. I'm going to read just a short passage from Ezekiel 36. Of course, we know the prophet Ezekiel is speaking about a future time in which Israel will turn from their sins, uh, and they will... Uh, experience regeneration and renewal, uh, but yet as new covenant believers, we have already experienced these same things. And so yet, Paul, yet although uh, the writer is speaking of the future, these are the same things we've experienced now, we experience now. And so he describes both regeneration and renewal. Ezekiel 36 verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's regeneration. Verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's renewal. Regeneration and renewal. So the washing of regeneration focuses on the cleansing of past sins and an inner transformation, a new beginning. That's the John 3 new birth. The renewal of the Holy Spirit focuses on the new life to be lived, the new life to be lived. Therefore, regeneration is the event related to salvation, and renewal is the condition. This is the condition that the regenerate enter into, a state of being renewed, renewed, excuse me, wrong tense. Referral refers to the inner transformation of the believer. Renewal describes how the believer's mind is being renewed to the true knowledge of God. So you know Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That's what this is speaking of. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 12. He's talking to believers. They've experienced regeneration, and now he's calling on them to experience that mind renewal as they expose their mind to God's Word, as they participate in the, the church, what the church, the body of Christ does, they live lives for Christ. They're constantly being renewed. Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10 is really helpful. Maybe the, the, my favorite verse related to this subject. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another. Okay. <laughs> Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Paul's saying, don't lie to one another. You know why? Because you're a new creation. You've been made new. There's an event in your life. You've been born again. Stop lying to one another. The old man's gone. You have a new man. You have a new self. Notice, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You're a new person, and that new person is being renewed after, after the image of its creator. Therefore, I know there's a gap in the middle. I'm going to get there. If you're following along, there's a tension. Okay, hold it in your mind. I'll get there if you're paying attention. Therefore, renewal describes the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit within the believer to shape his new character after the nature of Christ. And so here's the, here's the thing I'll, that's maybe the question you have in your mind. So then for all that we have described regarding regeneration and deliverance from the power of sin and its defilement, regeneration does not eliminate all sin from the heart and life of the believer. And this is what we talk about when we talk about indwelling sin. Maybe you've heard that phrase or that language before, indwelling sin, or maybe the flesh. That's another way that we talk about that. You're a new creation, but you're still in this body of death, you're still in this fleshly body, and so that fleshly body wars against that new creation. And so that's why we need renewal to be changed. Otherwise, we would claim some kind of perfectionism. If we go so far with the new creation that we never sin, well, then we break Scripture, 1 uh, 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Oh, okay. So we do still have sin. We still struggle with sin. There is indwelling sin in our flesh. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, he's talking to believers, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we still war against sin in our flesh. We have indwelling sin. So how exactly does this happen? How does this renewal happen? How are you and I transformed by the renewal of our mind? How does God practically renew us in the image of our Creator? What does it look like? What do I do, John? I can't give you a checklist, but I do think there are some, some things that are helpful that I'll share with you. David Paulison is helpful here. He, he talks about five ways in which God renews us. If you're taking notes, this, this might be helpful. So how does God do this? What does this renewal look like? How are we conformed to the image of His Son? Well, number one, God Himself renews us. I mean, that's just, God just does it. We have to accept that. Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. 
So God just does it. He's going to renew you. He's going to change you. He is immediately and personally present, a life-creating voice, a strong and strengthening hand. God is going to be God in your life, and He's going to change you. He died for you, He loves you, and He's going to conform you to His image. We have to start there. What else? Well, the Word of God renews you. Scripture changes you. Uh, Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Even Titus 1.1, the first verse of this letter, Paul alludes to this when he says, Paul, a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. He's writing to those believers and he's writing to them, he's, he's talking about the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So as he lays out the truth, that's going to line up with living a godly life. God's word renews us. God Himself renews us. The Word of truth renews us. Wise people renew us. You know Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. God uses our brothers and sisters in Christ to change us, to renew us. The counsel of others helps. All those things are, are, are elements of, of God's conforming us to His image. You're going to like number four. Suffering, struggle, and trouble change you. I know. It's true, though, and we know it. God re renews us and changes us through suffering. Martin Luther called suffering the touchstone. Thanks, right? Thanks, Martin Luther. <laughs> the touchstone of Christian experience. He said that hardships were and are the greatest teacher because they make Scripture and prayer come alive. And we know that because we experience it. We're, we're never so close to God. We're never so near His, His changing work in our heart and in our life than we're experiencing trials and trouble. Paulson says, people change because something is hard, not because everything goes well. No pain, no gain. Ministry, tra he continues, ministry traffics in trouble because Christ enters trouble. He lives through trouble. He is unaware, uh, unafraid of trouble and speaks and acts into trouble. And so, struggle changes us. And finally, well, you renew you. You do it. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you, you Thessalonians, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You turn from darkness. You ask for help. You repent. You believe, trust, seek, take refuge. You speak the truth. You remind. You listen. You obey. You fear. You hope. You love. You give. You weep. You confess. You praise. You delight. You take an active role in your renewal. All of us do. And so, Paul, Paulison uses these five kind of uh, approaches to renewal, and he, and he has a picture of a house, and I think it's particularly help, helpful. He, he has an illustration of a house, and, you know, God is the foundation. God is the one that's renewing us. And then the roof is God's Word, right? God's Word comes into our life, and that's what changes us. That's what renews us. And he's got the outer walls or suffering and wise counsel, so those things are holding up the house. And then who's at the center? Well, you're at the center. And so in all of these ways, 
it's not a go do this thing, and it's not a checklist of ideas, but it's just a, a, I think it's a biblical approach to how, in fact, God does renew us, how He conforms us to His image, how He, in fact, transforms us. And so this is what renewal is. Now, before we move to our last question, we have to look down at verse 6. We have to discover to what degree the Holy Spirit has been given to us. So, verse 6, he says, the Holy Spirit, Paul writing, says, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He poured out on us richly, abundantly, generously, lavishly. This is the idea of of pouring out, tipping over richly. You you might recall the words of the Apostle John, John 3.34, He gives the Spirit without measure. There's an abundant overflow. One commentator I read wrote, Paul envisions an issuance of the Holy Spirit not in dabs and dribbles, but in full and rich stream. And I would say we would need a stream for all of these things that we're talking about to happen. We would absolutely need the Holy Spirit poured out on us richly for all of these changes to occur. So then how does God save us? Well, He does so, as we've discovered, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom, in fact, He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so we have one final question to answer and one kind of final question that the text addresses, and it's this. For what results did God save us? For what results did God do all this? It comes to us in verse 7. So that, remember that's your key there, that turn there when you read so that, you're getting at purpose or results. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that being justified, being declared righteous, being saved by His grace, we might become heirs. And that's the idea here. That's the central idea. And so this verse really wraps up salvation. It it, it wraps it up. It's the full picture. The full picture comes into view with this idea of being an heir. George Knight, he writes, the concept of salvation presented here is grand in its perspective and inclusive in its accomplishment. The perspective is that God enters into history with His gracious attitude to act for us, transforming us now and making us heirs for an eternity with Him. The accomplishment is that we are delivered from past bondage to sin made here and now new and transformed people who are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, thus already declared justified at the bar of God's judgment and finally made heirs of future eternal life. This is a profound passage of Scripture. Everything is here. To be an heir is to stand as a child of God who will receive something from, for a possession. We stand in a privileged position as heirs. And of course, we know that that something that we will possess is eternal life. It's life forever with God. We get God. We are heirs of eternal life, a future unending life with God. John Kitchen writes, think of what this verse assures us. 
As believers in Christ, our sin is atoned for. Wrath no longer looms over us. Rather, we stand in the presence of God in the righteousness of Christ, declared righteous now and forevermore. Not only are we declared righteous, but we are actually made children of God. And as children, appointed as heirs of of God and co-heirs with Christ. And we are present possessors of eternal life and wait with confidence for our entrance into the fullness of all that we had begun even now to experience. So we have here the trustworthy details of our salvation. You remember verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. This is a trustworthy saying. These are trustworthy details. So if you remember the way I opened this message, and I'm nearing the conclusion here, how then does this empower us to make an impact in an ungodly world? That's how I opened this, and, and I spent the entire time talking about salvation, the details, components of our salvation. Maybe you thought I took a right turn somewhere and I missed my goal. Maybe I did. I don't know. And, and to answer that question, I think, fully, it probably would require a different message, but I think we can say a couple things here as this, in this next verse that will draw this together. And so, again, verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, these details of salvation, and I want you to insist on these things, insist on these details. Why? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, for everyone, Paul says. What, Paul, what I believe Paul is saying here is that when we hold up the details of our, of our salvation, when we insist on a biblical view of salvation, it empowers us to live faithful and obedient lives. When, when, we, when we get the gospel right, you know, we talk about a gospel-centric church. You know, gospel's at the center. We're always using that, the gospel. I mean, this is the gospel. I haven't used that word too much here. But the details of salvation, this is the gospel. And so when the gospel is at the center, then we are ready. When we insist on those things, then we're ready to affect change in our culture. If we don't focus on the gospel and we don't get the gospel right, we can't make any lasting change. Those things are not profitable or excellent for people. The things that are excellent and profitable for people that we need to insist on is the good news of Jesus Christ. It has to start there. Everything else grows out of that reality and that truth. Making an impact in this world won't grow out of any secular or political or humanitarian effort. As good as those things are, lasting change will not come out of those things. They won't. It might, the truth might affect those spheres. The gospel might reach into those spheres, but we don't begin in those spheres. We begin somewhere else. We begin with a right view of salvation. A right view of salvation is the hub in which all our efforts to make an impact in this late modern world must be attached to. It's our home base. It's our home base. It's the driving force behind any effort to become a multiracial and multi-ethnic church. The gospel has to drive those efforts. Otherwise, we're no different than the world. 
but the gospel tears down those walls. Think about the early church. There's no Jew or Gentile. There's nothing, well, there's, there are things, but uh, one of the most profound things the gospel did in the early church was to push over those dividing walls, was to say, we can worship together. But the central idea was the gospel. That's what changed it. That has to be the hub by which all effort is, is, runs back to. The salvation has to be the, the, behind all the caring we do for the poor and the marginalized in the world. Think about the early church. What did they do? They cared for the poor. They cared for the women, the marginalized, the people in their culture that were at the end, edge of the culture. And they did it in the name of Jesus and for the gospel and because of the gospel. Behind all the, the efforts to promote peace and justice and reconciliation in this world. Behind all our attempts to defend the unborn, there, there would be a lot to say about the way the early church dealt with that issue. Michael Green has some good stuff he's written on that. <clears throat> Behind all the, our assessments of sex, of sexuality, and gender, salvation, the gospel, has to be central in those conversations. Otherwise, we're no different than the world, and we're not going to make a lasting impact in this late modern culture. And so our text closes this morning, and I'll close this morning with this. These things are excellent and profitable for people. We have the simple yet profound truth that these things, understanding the details of our salvation, will empower us to live in such a way that will make for profit. Thus, salvation well-defined is the surest way to empower us to make an impact in our ungodly world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we are in awe of salvation. We ought to be because the details of which are beyond us. They're bigger than we could ever think or ever imagine. Beginning with this reality that you have entered into this world in the person of your Son, that He did not count equality with you, a thing to be held on to or grasped too tightly, but He emptied Himself by forever, in a moment, adding a human body to Himself. That even now, He understands because He has a body forever. And that body was used to come to this earth and to lay it down to purchase our redemption. This, is, this has to be the, the, the highest thing that we consider when we think about affecting change in our community and with our neighbors. It has to be. Because it, it reaches into our lives in such a way that we have a new beginning. And that new beginning works itself out in such a way that we have renewal. We can be changed. It is the answer. It is the ultimate and highest answer to all of the world's problems. He saved us. God, I pray, I plead that you would make us a people who are so in love with your gospel, your good news of salvation, and so taken, taken up into the glories of our salvation that we would step over the threshold of our home, that we would step into our workplace, 
that we would step uh, out into our neighborhoods and we would tell people about Jesus. We would love them with the love of Jesus. We would recognize that while we were yet sinners, God showed mercy on us. And we would likewise love people, be patient with people, help them understand, Lord, that you are a saving God and you can affect change in this world and in our lives. We pray this, Lord, in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.